It is with excitement that I get to share with you that the Leukaemia Foundation has developed a new resource. This resource is called the Online Support Service, where it provides a wealth of services to assist a person living with blood cancer throughout their patient journey. So whether you're a patient who has just been diagnosed, in treatment or in survivorship, this service provides access to targeted learning modules, a suite of amazing services and online programs. And you also have the ability to chat with an experienced blood cancer support coordinator at just one click. It gives people a personalised and intuitive way to learn about important topics, including what to expect beyond treatment. This service is simple to use and is filled with content curated by the Leukaemia Foundation for people with any type of blood cancer. It notably features a digital energy coach to help patients manage fatigue. So jump onto our website and look up our new and exciting product called the Online Blood Cancer Support Service. Hi, and welcome to the Leukemia Foundation's podcast, Talking Blood Cancer. My name is Kate Arkadiff, and my role at the Leukemia Foundation is a blood cancer support coordinator. We provide emotional and practical support to people living with blood cancer and their loved ones. Our support is offered throughout the many different stages of a blood cancer journey. While listening to this podcast, we will share the stories of people we have connected with who have faced blood cancer so that you, our listeners, can gain insight, find purpose and take inspiration. The Leukaemia Foundation acknowledges the traditional owners of the country throughout Australia and recognises their continuing connection to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. This story may contain content that some listeners may find difficult and challenging. We encourage anyone listening to take care of their own mental health and well-being. The purpose of this podcast is to share the real-life stories of people living with a blood cancer, and any discussion of medical treatments is not an endorsement. We encourage you to seek the advice from your treatment team if you have any questions regarding your diagnosis, side effects, or treatment. If you would like to talk to someone or even if you would like more information on our services or on today's episode, please feel free to contact 1-800-620-420 and someone will be able to connect you with your local blood cancer support coordinator. So let's get into today's episode. Today, I'm speaking with Tom Dumphy. It was 2019 when Tom and his girlfriend had just discovered they were expecting their first child. They were on the biggest high. Weeks later, Tom began developing symptoms that had him alarmed and after some investigation, he was told he has lymphoma. Tom talks to me about what his journey was like with lymphoma and how he managed an autologous transplant all while bringing his son into the world. It is an incredible story and the strength of the human spirit really shines through. Hi, Tom. Thanks for coming on. Well, thanks for having me on, Kate. 
So what was happening for you around the time of your blood cancer diagnosis? So a lot was happening for Courtney and I. Um, I mean, a huge kind of narrative to this whole story is about three weeks. It was three weeks before I got my diagnosis that we found out that we were having a baby. So Courtney, we just just after Christmas, she'd uh, taken the pregnancy test and freaked out to say the least because it's not something we were prepared for. Um, so yeah, there was a big sort of shift in our thought and how our life was going to pan out and it was like, well, you know, we've got a plan for having a child now. And um, uh, through that period, uh, I was under a lot of stress, which is something I'll probably talk about because I feel it has a lot to do with like my illness and my diagnosis. I was under a lot of stress because Courtney and I have always sort of had our own business and at that time of year, at Christmas especially, you're not working, no money's coming in. Um, we'd had some dramas uh, later in the year before that, like financially to do with the business. So we're in a bit of a stressed out spot sort of. Um, so I was in a stressed situation and I was doing contract work to kind of make the ends meet at the same time. Then we figured out we're having a baby. Um, and, it, yeah, it basically just happened in a way that, you know, I found a lump under my armpit, which I thought had been a bit of swelling from my, oh, I go fishing a lot in my kayak. Mm-hmm. And I thought, my rod butt had been rubbing in my armpit and sort of created a lump. So I just sort of laid back one night. It was at Christmas. It was Christmas, no, Boxing Day. I laid back and I sort of felt this lump and I was like, oh, I don't know what that is. So I started that investigation process, um, which, you know, obviously turned out to be lymphoma. Uh, but, yeah, that's sort of where it's at. It's a pretty manic, stressful time of our last when it had happened. Um, and it was just, yeah. you know situation where it was just like oh it was like you know how many things can you get hit with at once but at the same time I'm very aware of myself and my body and how it functions and I'm like you know I've just been way too stressed and unhealthy lately and I feel like that's what's led to this point. Yeah, yeah. So I, I can't. I can't even imagine. Like you know, as you said, you were you had your life. You, you got this bomb that you were going to have a baby, which is a beautiful blessing. But sometimes it can just rattle your world all at the same time. But then you said you were kind of shuffling to get your head around that, and you focus on okay, well, what does the future look like? And then to kind of go, oh, what's that lump? What's what's going on there? Did you? Did you avoid going to the doctors? I mean, being a young male, the statistics show that men don't like quite going to the doctor as readily as women do. So did you go straight to the doctor or did you do some research or kind of what did you what did you do? I didn't do research because, like, my the business that I'm talking about is a lot to do. It's within the health and wellness sector. So, like, I'm very, like, aware of my body and health and how your body works and it's something I research and study and something I'm interested in. So my first thought was, like, don't don't go to Google and don't freak yourself out for one. And two, I'm, I'm quite well aware, obviously, how the lymph system works and I know if you've got an infection, like you can, lips can swell. And like, and I've, I've had that happen to me in the past, like years ago as well. Like mm-hmm. I think I had one in the groin come up when I'd had a cut on my leg or something like that. Um, and I, like I said, I was fishing a lot. So I also put a hook through my thumb that day before and I thought I've got an infection. Like that's the, that's the sort of first mm-hmm. thing that popped through my head. Um, and then, you know, obviously I went and got the blood test done Um that, that was, you know, that was the first point of call was get the blood test done because the doctor said we'll check your, 
you know, your infection levels and that's probably what it is and this and that. Um, and then I actually didn't hear from the doctor for about three weeks. So I was like, oh, everything's fine. You know what I mean? Mm. Um, yeah. But it was, yeah, so when I knew it wasn't fine is I, I had woken up uh, one morning and I'd been really tired like for about a, a couple of weeks leading up to it. We just moved house as well. So we'd moved into a small unit because we, Elise was coming up, we are having a kid, we were in a really big expensive house at Morningside and we thought we need to reduce our costs, save some money for the kid, um, for Teddy, sorry, I shouldn't just call him the kid. Um, <laughs> and and I was just absolutely wrecked through that house moving process. Like I was just so tired and then no matter how much I slept, I'd just wake up tired every day. And it wasn't until... I didn't even think about the fact that the doctor hadn't rung me and I felt and I said, oh, that lump's still there. And I'd woke up one morning to go to work. It was a Monday morning after the weekend and I'd slept like 12 hours because I was super tired and I woke up and I was just still super tired like I hadn't slept. And then I, I got up to go to the toilet in the morning and then I, I was just sort of, you know, my chest was quite sore so I sort of felt around my chest and I'd actually realised that I had a massive lump here in the front of my chest as well. And that was when in my head I'm like, that's not good. Like that's not a, that's not, yeah. you know, an infection or something that's like that. That's not normal. No, mm. but I actually went to work. So I went to work that day and I thought I'll book in for the, I'll go to work because I needed to go to work. I'll book in for the doctor and I'll sort of see what they say. So I booked in for the doctor. She said, yeah, I've got an appointment today. Come in. So I left work and I went to the doctor. She sort of had a look and feel and she goes, you need to go for a CT scan right now. And I was like, okay. So, and for anybody that's been through this process, I can tell you now that those moments leading up to that diagnosis where you, where they're investigating and you're thinking the worst and you start to look into it are probably like one of the most fearful and stressful things you can go through. And uh, so I went in for the CT scan had the CT scan, I left the CT scan clinic. I got a phone call about 10 minutes after I left the CT scan clinic. They rung me and they said, we need you to come yeah. back for another scan. And that's when I was like, mm. and I and I was like. That doesn't I, usually happen. doesn't happen. And I said, well, like, why? Like, you're on the phone. I'm like, why? Like, why didn't you even come back? What did you see? What's wrong? She goes, look, can you just come back? And I said, okay. So I went back in. I had the scan and I was freaking out but respectful and I said to the, the lady doing the scan, I said, can someone just talk to me because I just, it was a Friday, it was actually a Friday afternoon, sorry, it was a Friday because it was going into the weekend and I said, I'm going into the weekend. It's and always I, the way. It's and always I, yeah, and I, I don't want to sit on this for 48 hours. Like, So uh, the, um, the radiologist or whatever he is came out with, Bless his little soul. He was about 90 and he had a walking frame and he came out and he goes, look, oh. he, 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 he said, you know, usually we don't do this, but, you know, serious the weekend, what's going on? He said, we've found spots in your spleen, your liver, your spine. He said, we've got a pretty good idea of what it is. So, you know, I'll call your doctor and I'll see if she can fit you back in this afternoon. So then I, I, at that point I left, I was just numb. Like I was absolutely numb because I. Because were you by yourself? I was by myself. By yourself? Yeah, I was by myself because I just left work. Everybody else was at work. So I had to then drive back to the doctor. So I drove back to the doctor. I walked in and she's like, um, you know, we think you've got lymphoma. 
And the weirdest thing about this whole process, which I don't know if anybody else got this or understands this, like I said, that process leading up to it is so stressful and fearful. As soon as she said that, I calmed down immediately because I'm like, okay, I know what's going on. We know. We know and now it's just a process of dealing with that. And then, and then I left. I didn't. I didn't call anybody straight away. I just left the doctor and I just drove around aimlessly for like half an hour. Like I didn't know what to do, who to ring. I just drove around, and the first person I actually rung was my mum. I didn't ring Courtney because a Courtney's like a few weeks pregnant. She's at work, and I, she just would have broke her heart. So I rang my mum because my mum's had cancer before, about 15 years ago, and obviously in remission. Uh, she had breast cancer, and I rang her, and I just, like, I just cried, and I cried. Like, first time I'd ever cried yeah. like that in my life, you know, being an adult male, and I just, yeah. and I just, I didn't know what to yeah. do. I was freaked out. Like, you know, it's immediate. Yeah. Immediately you think in your head it's a death sentence, so it's just like, you know. And then my, my thoughts immediately shifted to obviously I have to tell Courtney and I didn't ring her. I went to her work and I sort of sat her down and I said to her in person, I said, look, this is what's going on. And the biggest shift in this situation, which we'll probably talk about a bit more, is I, like me then turning into the mode of assuring, making sure everybody else was okay. Like I was like, I just put myself immediately in that space of like, I need to reassure everybody that I'm going to be okay and not freak them out. Yep. So I did that with Courtney tried, and obviously she's pregnant and I didn't want her to freak out at the same time and stress out. And, you know, obviously she was devastated and yeah, that's, that's sort of like, you know. But did you even know what the, did you even know what lymphoma was? Like, <laughs> so, you know, had you heard of it? Between waking up that morning, going to work, finding the other lump in my chest, I jumped on Google, and then a lot of a lot of other things made sense because I it was um, coming out. It was in summer. It was a middle of summer, so it was January. But like I'd woken up with the night sweats a few oh. times. Yeah, so I'd woken up with the night sweats a few times, but in my head I'm just like, oh, it's 30 degrees and 80% humidity at night. It can't be, what would that be? Yeah. You know what I mean? You don't even think about it when yeah. it happens. But then obviously when yeah, you, you don't read, think about cancer. Yeah, and then so, so that morning I did a bit of Googling. Obviously it's the, the worst thing you can do because if you've got a sore toe, it tells you you've got cancer. But, um, yeah. but, yeah, I just immediately was like, I looked up and it was, you know, the lumps, the tiredness, the night sweats, the lack of energy, and I was just like, oh, crap. So, yes. So that's – and then – Google was right. Google was right, yeah, as you'd know if you've seen the YouTube video. But, yeah. Yeah. So that, that's, that was yeah, kind man. of the 24 hours that surrounded it. And then, yeah, that night, Obviously, your family gets around you. So my my mum and my sisters came around, and Courtney and Courtney's sister, my sister in law, and they all just sort of got around. We talked about it. I had a couple of mates come around. Um, the first thing I did that night was funny. I hadn't smoked in a long time. I had a cigarette because I was like, you know what? I'm already sick. I need to have a cigarette. Why? I had a Why cigarette. Not? Why not? Because yeah. my mate came around. And yeah. He had. I was like, give me one of those. I just I just need to digest this, but. But like I said, I was very calm. I was very calm after I found out the situation. Um, 
obviously it's a different story moving on then because it goes from, okay, we've sent your referral through the MARTA. They'll probably ring you by Monday morning. They ring you by Monday. They say come in Tuesday, like, and it's just it's go, go, go from there. Like, it's just yeah. a, it's a quick yeah. process, which is it free, it's it's a it's hard, but it's it's credit to how the system works, and they don't muck around when yeah. they find out you're in that situation. One hundred percent, and I think you know, and because I know that you went to the the Mata Public, and I think you know a lot of people think that oh, the public system, if you sit in it, you, it doesn't work fast. You know, that's why you need to go private. But as you've just beautifully said, that they do not muck around, private or publicly. Like if there is something wrong that that system will have you in in there as fast as you can imagine and things will begin to unfold and as you will tell, you know, you, you had scans, your test and you met the do- your doctor, you know, within a week or whatever. So, yeah, it's, um, it is an amazing system. Yeah, and that's, that's a really important aspect of it because, like you said, a lot of people feel that way and it's just like I, I cannot fault the public health system through that whole process. Like ultimately, like I've said more than one occasion, my hematologist saved my life and not just because he does what he does, but like as you would know part of my story, but if you want to talk about it more, like I've got I got diagnosed and misdiagnosed and I had different type of lymphoma. Yeah. I had to, had to change treatments and it was only for the fact my hematologist was like something's not right with your treatment, yeah. something's going on because, you know, yeah, the whole process is you go and you do a PET scan, you do the biopsy. Um, the biopsy came back as classical Hodgkin's lymphoma, so that's what they started to treat. Treatment didn't start, didn't work, um, which is a pretty tough time because that's sort of you get this situation where you're like, okay, it's not working. What's option B? Uh, so they did yeah. another another yeah, biopsy. And you, and you- yeah, and you get invested in it too. You're like, right, I'm on the track. We've got, you know, you you got all your armor on, ready to fight this, and then for it to turn around and go, oh, actually, no, that that didn't work. <laughs> that that didn't work at all. And that is soul crushing. Is it? Was it? Was that harder to take than the diagnosis? That that news. It, it really was because. Um mainly because what happened was they obviously started to treat and what would happen is they do the trick because by the time we come around of treatment, I had sw- I had a lump in my neck here and I had swelling through my whole chest and the lump in my armpit was almost like half the size of a mango. So this lump in my chest was actually putting wow. pressure on my lung and when they started yeah. to do the ke- when, when they would do the chemo, which is ABVD, the traditional one for Hodgkin's, it, the lump would go down. And then within four to five days after the treatment, it would start to come back up again. And I was, you know, I would communicate that with the doctors. They were aware of it. And I was sort of like, and they sort of like, you know, sometimes it does that. You get a bit of swelling because classical Hodgkin's is a very inflammatory lymphoma compared to others. So we got through two cycles, I think. And then uh, the breaking, the tough breaking point of that was, uh, I woke up one morning and like I couldn't breathe properly, so I had a little sharp pain sort of on my left side, down the bottom, like around my back. So I couldn't breathe properly, and like the lump in my chest was actually really uncomfortable. And it got to that point where I just sort of, you know, I sat down, I went outside, and I spoke to Courtney, and I actually turned to her and I said, like, I think you got to face the reality that I might 
not be here in a couple of months. Like, and mm. you know that was that was tough for and both I, of us. Like, because how many months pregnant was she? You know, like that's yeah, yeah, that's it. She was you know only three four months pregnant at that time. So, um, yeah. so like I was saying, sort of you know credit to the healthcare system because they did the second biopsy. The second biopsy actually came back at um, classical Hodgkin's lymphoma. Same thing. And what they do in that process, if anyone knows, they escalate the treatment to one called BCOP, I think it's called, and then they go from there, um, which has a higher chance of working, more side effects, more long-term side effects. Um, yeah. So my haematologist actually sent my biopsy then off to the PA hospital, the Royal Brisbane Hospital and QML to a lady who's the head of haematology. And she they got her, she's like a lymphoma doctor. You might even know her name, I'm not sure, but I can't remember it right yeah. now. Um, so Dr. she... No, it's like Dr. Green, Lisa Green or Gray or something like that. She's oh, Australian, okay. yeah. yeah. Um, so she's the one that actually figured out that uh, I had a rare subtype of lymphoma, which I'll try and remember. Uh, nodular lymphocyte, nodular lymphocyte predominant Hodgkin's lymphoma with large B cell and histine T cell involvement. That was my diagnosis. So it just sounds like it sounds like you got a whole mixed bag from what I get. That. <laughs> a mixed bag, which I said, like I'd, I'd read a lot about. Um, what they call double hit lymphoma, where people get two different types. Yeah. Triple hit, they get two, yeah. three different types, and obviously your survival rate goes like this. Um, but my doctor actually said it's actually it's actually still classical, but it's just like it, it mutates again. It takes a second mutation because it gets to stage four B and then past that, so then it starts to mutate again. Um, so, but they, they put me on a treatment they were pretty confident with, but then obviously said I had to do a stem cell transplant at the end of that treatment. And so, like I said, I had that pain and difficulty breathing. So I got admitted to hospital, put straight on, and they put a fentanyl port straight into my chest, which within, you know, that was within 20 minutes of being in the emergency department. So then I was like, because they did a quick CT scan when I got there, put a fentanyl port straight in my chest. And that's when I was like, they obviously know something's going on that's going to be quite painful to deal with. Um, So then I spent, yeah, I had my first new chemo in hospital. So I spent about seven days in hospital that time. Um, But like my, from the very first, within four hours, I think, of getting that chemo infusion, the lumps were gone. Like, gone, like completely, completely gone. Yeah, so yeah. and then never came back. So and and what a, you know a confirmation for you to get instantly that this is working. That yep, now we're on the right track. We're now we're you know heading in the right direction of getting on top of this. Yeah, exactly, and that's and it's credit to like, like head hematologist as well. You know, even in a bad stressful situation, the way he delivered information was so calming and. Um, reassuring that he was like you know even when it wasn't working and he goes look we're going to move to this i figured out what it is and like don't worry you're going to be fine like we we deal with this stuff all the time so it was very reassuring on his part and did a great job you know obviously you know keeping me in a good space and it sounds like communication you know through 
listening to you, it sounds like communication was so important. You know, by him communicating with other doctors, it helped find, you know, that something wasn't quite right, but also that you've been able to communicate back to the doctors that, in fact, actually, no, something's not quite right and these were your side effects. Do you think that that was an important part for you? Would you agree that having that open communication really helped support your treatment and your nerves and your and to help you feel calm? Yeah, and the thing is, like, I'm, I'm a very analytical person at heart anyway, so I take everything in and analyse it and overanalyse it, as Courtney would say, overanalyse everything. Uh, so, you know, in, when the lumps were sort of coming back and sticking around right from the early days, like, I communicated that immediately i said look uh like i asked like are the lumps supposed to go away straight away and the the thing is like the reason why we got all the way to the end of cycle two to where the scan was because you do two cycles and they do a pet scan to sort of check progress um is because the doctors are obviously like you know look it it does it does happen like you know what i mean they can it can take to the third fourth fourth because with ABVD, you do like 12 sessions over six months. So they yeah. said that, you know, they can come and go, but it's the, you know, the crux of the situation was the, obviously the pain and the lump and then being hospitalized and then doing a CT scan to figure out what was going on and then figure out pretty quickly, you know, what was going on. Um, and that, and you know, that's, that's a really important aspect as well is like you, and everybody will go through waves where they're feeling weak or they're feeling tough and everybody wants to be tough and especially when you're a male, you're like, you know, I say I woke up in the morning, I couldn't breathe, but two days prior to that my was breathing when I was hurting and I was just like, mm, yeah. you know, maybe I just pulled a muscle in my back, I'm not sure. Like, you know, I let that go for two days until the third day where I, like, it was actually really uncomfortable for me to draw a breath in and I was like, this, yeah. this, this, wow. is a, this is a normal. Um, yeah, and then you know, at that point I hadn't even checked if I'd had a fever or anything. And when I arrived in ED, I had a mild fever at 38 degrees and I was like, I didn't even know that either. So, um, yeah, yeah. so, yeah, the communication is definitely important. And obviously, yeah, like, like I've said to you personally in the past, like just being knowing you're vulnerable and just be vulnerable, like just go – you know, don't try and tough it out because, you know, you're in a, your body's in a far more vulnerable position than what you think it's in. So you just really need to listen listen to it and kind of take action on it as quick as possible because, you know what, if you, if totally. you, yeah, if you take action and there's nothing wrong, who cares? It's, you know, but if you do. Want to be lost. Yeah, if you do and there is something wrong, which, you know, through that journey nine times out of ten there is something wrong, so yeah, yeah. you just got to listen to your body and kind of take action on it. Yeah, and I think that it also it's um it doesn't also necessarily mean that it's going if there is something wrong that it's going to be your undoing. It's just that this is just a hiccup. It's a bump. It's a fever. It's an infection that needs to be treated. And as you've said, if if you let it go and you don't listen to your body, that that's where the more of the damage can be actually done. And I think by listening to your body, a part of that comes with surrendering. Would you not agree that you just have to surrender to the process and, as you say, trust in it and go, okay, I, I trust what's ahead? Yeah, exactly. That's that's really what you have to do. You really just got to go with the flow because, like, there's no there's no pushback against it. And I've said before that I don't really like calling it a battle. Like, a lot of people 
you know, give you best wishes and good luck to go through your battle and you're so strong through your fight and your battle. And I don't like that that angle of thinking because battles can be won or lost, um, whereas Courtney and I have really thrived in our lives through travelling and business by just being adaptable people. Like we're very adaptable to things and lifestyles and situations and whether it's like personally, financially, socially, like logistically, like we're just we're adapt to it. And, you know, I had a lot of help from a good friend early on in the journey. I've got a really good friend of mine who, like, you know, I owe a lot of my my journey and you know getting getting through that journey to him um because he's a he's a qualified uh neuroscientist and he's very aware of the the mind and the brain and he works a lot with meditation and he said he 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 pointed out my strengths really on in the beginning he said look you know you've done so well in other aspects of your life because you're adaptable and you just need to adapt to this situation you both need to adapt to it and go with the flow and that's what we did really early on um and didn't let the whole we it's almost like embracing it with open arms. Like we just embraced it. We're like, mm-hmm. okay, this is what we do now. We made it a journey. Every time we went to chemo, we'd have a little bag that we'd pack and we'd know what time the traffic would take and we'd get there at the right time and we'd just go through this little journey every single time. Yeah. And unfortunately... And go most, get your coffee. Go get my coffee. And then unfortunately through most of the early chemo journeys, I actually ended up in hospital on every infusion because I would get fevers and reactions. So that was a tough thing to take, especially for Courtney. She'd go to the hospital with me and have to go home without me. Um, And and she's pregnant and she's emotional and vulnerable as well. Yeah, Yeah, she has to go home and and be by herself and then I have to be in the hospital by myself. Like, you know, there's other people there, but obviously you don't have your family with you. Um, Yeah, so it's... It's a big embracing, and there's, there's, you have to have acceptance for it. This, and like, like you're saying that accepting that vulnerability, it's actually something I really didn't do till really late in the journey. And when I mean late in the journey, I mean like after treatment, through the stem cell transplant. Uh, we can talk about it in more detail if you want. Ended up in ICU, not very well, and it wasn't until that point where they're like, you've got this percentage chance of getting through this when I was not very well where Mm. I finally accepted and said to myself, like, mate, you're sick. Like, you know, be just be sick. Like be in that moment and be sick because I spent so much of the time reassuring everybody I was okay and being tough. And and it comes from other people too. And it's not a, and it's not a, it's not a disrespectful thing and it's not something they mean to do, but it's just like, you know, you are you young. You know, you'll get through this. You're strong. Mm. You're fit. You're young. You're healthy. You've been healthy, Um, which then you kind of feel like you have a standard to uphold in as far as, like, I am fit. I am young. I am healthy. Like, I should breeze through this. You know what I mean? But the reality of the situation is things go wrong and then you're not so well. Yeah. And you have to, you really have to accept that for the healing process. Um, but yeah, like yeah. the other level of acceptance is just accepting the fact that it's happening and just going with the flow. Like that's a really big thing. And I think for um, people, you know, young adults that are listening, and you know, we do. There is that narrative that we do hear that oh, you get sick when you're eighty, you get sick when you know when you're in your old age, but. That's just a narrative we've been told and it's actually not reality. Reality is is that a diagnosis and especially a blood diagnosis can really walk into your life at 
any point in time. You know, it, 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 um, it doesn't dodge anybody that's under the age of 60. It, it, it hits little babies. It hits people in their teens, 20s, 30s, 40s. So, um, yeah, I think that, as you said, that that's a really hard thing to accept to go, okay, yeah, yeah, I am this age. However, this has happened in my life. Yeah, and um, I had I had a um a quote by Brene Brown, which I thought was really great, and it talks about you know when we deny the story, it defines us, but when we own the story, we then have the ability to write a brand new ending. And I think mm. that's almost what you're talking about. You know, whilst you were denying that you were sick, it was almost holding you back from being able to propel yourself forward to go okay I actually not only do I physically need to get through this I mentally need to get through this as well and um, yeah. by denying the fact you're sick you block you have that block to get through the mental the mental hurdle that is blood cancer yeah yeah that's it and you know it and it was it was a really big shifting point for me because um, obviously I had some issues go wrong through the stem cell transplant. Um, like I had a an engraftment syndrome and my immune system started to recover. And I believe it's called PERS. I can never remember what it's called. It's called like um, post engraftment respiratory syndrome or something like that. So my own my own immune system attacked my lungs and they basically filled up with fluid and blood and I couldn't breathe, ended up in ICU for a couple of weeks. And it it wasn't until that moment because the the, the very big attitude that I had towards the whole thing was um, somebody's got it worse. Like, you know, even though I was as sick as I was and I was going through what I was going through and all the all the lovely, fun and wonderful quirky things you get with cancer like blood clots and constipation, mm. whatever it is, like your, your life gets pretty miserable. But, you know, most days I was still able to get up and walk around the block and get a coffee and, you know, so I'd always be like, you know, someone's doing it more tough than me. And, and it wasn't until yeah. I was in that ICU situation where I remember I, I was just laying on a gurney and they're taking me for CT scans every four hours to check the track of my lungs, and I couldn't mm. move. Like I couldn't move myself from one gurney to the CT gurney to be able to. I, like I did, I couldn't move at all. And I was on oxygen assistance as well. And you're 31 at this stage. You're 31, 32. 32. 32. Yeah, I was 32. Um, yeah. And it wasn't until that point where I was just like. Because previously to that, right, right, even up to that point, even being really sick, like I was like, oh, I'll, I'll help myself get onto the gurney. Like it's okay. Like they, like do they, like you know, do you want us to slide you across? I go, no, I can do it. So I would try and do it. And it wasn't until that day where, like, it was they're like, we'll slide, we'll do us to slide you across. Like, or can you move across? And all I had the energy to do is just shake my head like this a little bit. And it wasn't in my head. I was just saying to myself, like. Okay, mate, like you're sick, you know, but that was the yeah. acceptance point. And it was that same day, yeah. I believe my mum actually came to saw me see me and she she's the one, the first one that really validated it for me because that whole time I sort of kept up this really tough front and been like, you know, I'm okay, because I wanted other people to be okay. Like at this day <clears throat> at this yeah. stage in the stem cell transplant, Teddy was about two and a half, three months old. So Courtney was definitely yeah. 
Courtney's at home with a newborn baby and until that point where I ended up in the ICU, he actually wasn't allowed to come and see me and I was in the hospital for six weeks. Yeah, and it wasn't until I was in ICU that they were like, I think you should bring him up because we're not sure what's going to happen in the next week or two. And so, you know, I kept up this tough front. But like I said, the turning point is my mum came to see me and she was like, you know, she went through cancer, obviously. She's had brothers and sisters go through cancer. Like my mum's uh, closest sister died from liver cancer. She watched her go through that. And um, she's just like, I haven't seen anybody go through something like what you're going through right now. Like, you know, because so many people yeah. said to us, you know, blood cancer is the best one to have, you know. It's, you know, the highest recovery rate and the highest cure rate and it's in young people and young people recover and, like, it wasn't until my mum sat by my bedside when I couldn't move and said, mate, you're not, you're sick, you know, you know you're not well. And, like, I, I went through nothing like that, <laughs> you know. So, yeah, yeah. That, that was kind of a big turning point for me. Yeah, and I think, you know, you're right there that people do, they have this perception of what cancer is and what the treatment is and what the recovery is. And people will say, oh, I had a friend that had breast cancer or liver cancer or, you know, kidney cancer. And it's not to discredit what they go through because what they go through is extremely tough. But a blood cancer journey and treatment is so very, very different. You know, the way that I explain it to people is is that it's like weeding, you know. It's like when you prep your garden. They have to kill everything, you know. They have to kill the good cells and the bad cells, you know, with your, with your what is it called, your bloodstone or your, um, my husband's going to kill me because he's an environmental scientist, but the weeding product, you know, they clean it and yeah. they, get rid of the, they get rid of the flowers and they get rid of the roots too and then all of a sudden, you know, by doing that, that depletes you that absolutely depletes you and your body can constantly every cycle has to bounce back up and it gets harder and harder and harder and to have a transplant it's um it's one of the toughest one of the toughest treatment regimes in the medical in the medical world so mm. yeah your mum was yeah. very right in saying yes Tom, you are sick you are very yeah. sick so you know through that and through the treatment and the lead up you know you you had that 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 beautiful moment of Teddy Teddy being born and um as as a friend you know I got to witness you you and Courtney both and even your family in in this this juxtaposing world where you had a beautiful moment but then also you had a a really big unknown entity on the other hand of of your health and what how that was going to play out how did you and Courtney kind of balance that was that just it is what it is and, and gathering on. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of that uh, a lot of that credit goes to Courtney. Like, you know, I don't think um, Teddy, I don't know if he'll ever realise how good of a mum he's got. Like, she's just, you know, she was an absolute superstar through that process. And I, I've said this to her and I've said it to other family members and I strongly believe, like, I feel if I was by either A, by myself or B, with any other partner in that situation that I probably wouldn't have made it through. But I think she's just yeah. such, like, she's just such a big surviving factor for me, not just by the support that she gave me, like, you know, running stuff up to the hospital, like running food to me, doing running water to me because I hated drinking tap water from the hospital and we drink like a filtered tap water at home so she'd fill up bottles and bring them to me and this is all while she's 
learning to be a mum for the first time by herself, changing nappies up yeah. through the night, breastfeeding. Baking a baby as well. Yeah, yeah, exactly, in that whole process. Um, so a lot of it is just credit to her. And, and at the same time, obviously, it was a giant motivation for me to get through it and be well, um, you know, because it, it was pretty touch and go. Like, I mean, thankfully, by the time his kind of birth came around, I was in a, uh, I wouldn't say a good position, but a position where the doctors are like, look, we can have a break between this cycle of chemo um, and we can yeah, just so have did a you, Did they help balance that? They helped with that timing of that around yeah, the birth? Yeah, yeah, they helped with the timing of that. So they said, look, you know, what we'll do is we do, and, and this is a, another thing other people have to understand about the healthcare system. Like I'll say this after I'll talk about the birth, but... So they balanced it in a way where they said, look, you've done your last lot of treatment, let's do a scan before, you know, a couple of weeks before the baby's due and we'll see where you're at. So they sent me in for a PET scan. PET scan came back really good. Like I still have, I still had active disease like in my sort of spleen and a little bit in my spine and they said, look, you know, we're probably in a situation where we can have a break for a couple of weeks around the birth. So Teddy, being the stubborn person he is, he is, he was stubborn in the womb. His birth date was, um, I think, originally the 13th of July. So he decided that he was going to stay in there for a couple of weeks. So, um, you know, yeah. we planned that around the 13th of July for the birthday. So we got a week past mm-hmm. the birthday overdue and then the doctors are saying, look, you know, we hadn't really planned for this. There's a situation where yeah. like, we're probably going to be having to do chemo in the next week or so um, to make sure we're keeping on track, um, which I really, really didn't want to do because I, the chemo I went through was RGDP, which is like a mixture of immunotherapy and like a salvage chemotherapy, real three really strong uh, chemotherapy, so like a gemcitabine, dexamethasone, which is like a steroid, and uh, cisplatin, which is the platinum type one which is a fun one if anybody doesn't know about that sends all your fingers and toes numb over a while and i'm still recovering for that um and but you know for three four five days after that infusion i i couldn't move like i'd be bedridden or couch ridden yeah you know just the thought of having to get up and walk to the kitchen i would be sick you know and so i I just dreaded the thought putting a newborn into that if she'd been in labor in that situation the reality was i wasn't going to be able to make it to the labor like i wouldn't be able to stand up for long enough i wouldn't be able to be in the room and i and support. yeah exactly and you know at that point i had to make a decision and i basically said to the doctors look I'm taking this in my own hands and I'm taking the risk that I'm not going to do a chemo until he comes out. Like I don't care if it sets me back and it puts a risk on me because I'm being there for the birth and I'm being there for her and that's how it's going to happen. Yeah. Um, so, you know, luckily then he came out a day before my birthday. So he's born on the 21st mm-hmm. of July. We walked out of hospital on my birthday with Teddy on the 22nd of July. Wow. Um, and then What I- a present. That's it. And then, you know, I had to lap that up for about uh, three days. So he came out of the hospital on the Monday and then I had the next cycle of chemo that Thursday, so his first week of being yeah. born. Um, you know, so that was quite, quite tough. And then 
for anyone that's obviously been in that situation when you're that sick and unwell, like even just, and it pains me to say it, but even the thought of just a crying baby, it just really added stress to the situation because I just was not well because I was like, you know, I can't get up and help her and I can't, you know, I couldn't do anything. There's so much guilt attached to it. There was, yeah. There's so much guilt of what you can't do and where you and what you have lost as well. Yeah. And I've suffered lots and lots of guilt to the whole process, which I'm actually still dealing with now. Like actually, um, I've mentioned to you before, like I've seen a psychologist through the hospital, like, you know, uh, under my own um, decision because, uh, like I said, prior to starting the journey, I actually organised hypnotherapy sessions so I wanted to get my, I knew getting my head in the right space was going to be such a big thing. Um, yeah, an important thing. Um, and I think that's a big part of what, like you were asking, how Courtney and I dealt with that situation, having a newborn, is just making sure our head was in the right space and then just sort of yeah. go on the flow and then just being like, you know, it sucks right now, but, you know, the journey is going to be worth the prize at the end. This too shall pass. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and you know, and like I was saying, as with the crying baby, as with the crying baby, and yeah, probably probably got worse over the next four months, to be honest. But um, yeah, but like I said, like credit to the healthcare system. People don't realise, like you know, if you lived in America and you don't have health cover, like a PET scan can cost you between seven and eleven thousand US dollars. And like our public health system to turn around and send us for a scan to make sure that we're all right, you know, that's a cost. That Those things are a cost to the government budget that people don't realise. And I'm one patient that yep. has like six PET scans, you know. You add in however yeah, many yep. other patients there are and what the cost that is to the government and, like, these doctors have mm-hmm. to make a decision and they would have pressure that on them from financials above mm-hmm. saying this patient's yep. costing too much money and they, they sort of go, no, like, stuff you we have to do this for this patient like so you know that's a big they advocate credit. for you yeah exactly so people have to realize that and you know people get you know upset with the public health care system but it's just like you know you got to realize what these people are dealing with to be able to keep you alive at the same time so yeah mm. And I think that I've, I, I know that I'm very um, blessed to be witness to, and I've, I've spoken with many other patients that say they, that once they're in a cancer ward or they're in a cancer outpatient um, centre, they see some true angels and they see some amazing work being done by other humans helping them stay alive or helping their loved ones stay alive. And not everyone's perfect and not every, not every health professional has the best day, but, um, you know, but the majority is that people are there and they're passionate to help people beat cancer. And um, that seeing that gives you such a different lens and perspective on life, mm. I truly believe. Definitely, especially like the oncology nurses, like, you know, being in that process where I had to spend an extended period of time in hospital, like for a stem cell transplant, like, you know, those girls kept me alive. And, yeah, like, you know, that's, that's, and to the point where, you know, my mum was like, you know, we need to come back up here one day and bring these girls a cake and cupcakes and flowers. And it's just like, um, you know, I haven't had the opportunity yep. to do that because mm-hmm. my recovery, it's like, you know, I've either been sick or Teddy's been sick and had a cold and, like, you know, we're not yeah, that up and COVID. 
COVID, like it's just yeah. we've never had a chance to go back up there. But I have, you know, run into them. I think you know, the best gift that you can I think the best gift you can give them is taking yourself and Teddy and Courtney up there and your mum and them seeing you guys living life yeah. as what they work so hard for for you to be able to do. Yeah, and yourself, exactly. you did that as well. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, there's there's definitely true angels up there and, and people don't it's just you know, it's they just they make the best of a bad situation because these these people just yeah. really they uplift you and they just care for you and they're so nice to you and it's not even just the doctors and nurses that get paid to be there. It's the there's volunteers, there's the older ladies that come up, they make your tea, they make your coffee, they get your water, they yeah. they they knit your beanies, they like they just do everything for you. They just, yeah. they just bend over backwards and it's just yeah. like I couldn't imagine going through that situation without surrounding those people, uh, by being surrounded by those people and. You know, and a big a big part of the recovery process as well is tough is because you, you you lose your hospital family because you go from going they up do. there and spending time with them twice three times a week or spending two weeks in the ward with them or six weeks in the ward with them that it's just like they just become your life and your friends and your family and then yeah people don't uh, an aspect that's probably not spoken about enough is like you know that surviving and getting through it is like you get to a point where you're like, what, what do I do now? Like I've lost my, my support network. Like it's like you're in the big wild <laughs> yeah. alone again and you've got to figure out how to interpret when you feel unwell. Is it a serious thing or is it not a serious thing? You don't have someone there to take your blood yeah. and your blood pressure and your temperature and, yeah, so, yeah, it's a yeah. definitely a It's that constant reassurance, isn't it, that you have at the hospital and, as you've said, you go from having that reassurance, having the people that truly understand the grit that's at the bottom that you've experienced and to then, as you've said, going out into the world with your friends, you know, and you being 32, not many of your friends or our friends have experienced themselves a blood cancer and they don't quite understand what a stem cell transplant is or what and what that means. But then for then you to come back out into life and go, okay, now where do I go? It's almost like you've You've left the, you know, I know you don't like the word battle, but it's the only one I can think of. You've left the battle or the war and now you're looking around going, everything looks a bit foreign and I don't quite know how to handle this myself. Yeah, exactly, which is why, you know, like I said, it's important for your mental headspace to like Courtney and I because it took a really big toll on my relation, uh, on our relationship too because, like, you know, especially doing the whole ICU thing and getting that really touch-and-go moment. Like, you know, I think when I had that, that syndrome with my lungs in, in ICU, they sort of said, you know, it, survival rate for this sort of thing is about 15%. So, you know, yeah. I've sort of had, you know, chats chats about that with Courtney and with my mum and my family and, um, you know, so Courtney got to this point where she'd almost – and not in a mean way, but she'd just written me off because she was like, I'm going to have to prepare for the fact that I'm moving on in life without him. Um, mm, yeah. So it was really important for us to go to the psychologist about that because it really, when I got home, it was tough for us living back together again in the space where we thought, you know, we're together all the time again and I'm surviving because she's just like, she had written me off and then we weren't meshing back together in our relationship. And, like, on top of that, being parents for the first time 
you know, with a four or five month old baby and adapting to that situation, like it was very tough. So, um, yeah, I've, you know, I can't recommend enough for people just sort of talk to people what they, who know what they're talking about as far as getting yourself in the right space for the recovery journey. Because like you said, it's just it's very hard, you know, you get through the other side of it and people are like, oh, okay, you're okay now, you're good. And it's just like, well, you're really not like, you know, you know, I'm 18 months out no. of that journey nearly and I'm, I'm still not quite the person I was. So, and I probably never will be again, but yeah. 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 Because mm. I think that that's really, uh, that, you know, you made a really, um, you touched on a really significant point that I don't think a lot of people talk about, the fact that it, that it does really take a toll on your relationship and it does take a big hit and it's, you know, as Courtney, she beautifully supported you but she also had to become very independent and, and do a lot of things on her own and to to manage and then as you said you, you kind of she thought may have thought oh gosh he's not going to be here so I need to protect myself and prepare for that which you know one would and then for as you said you went oh no hang on no that's not the story we've got to come we're coming back together and and um connecting and working as a team again and that in itself is can be really difficult because you come back into the household and you've got your opinions and and um you as you've you've changed as well so it's it's connecting with each other as a, not a new person, but that your soul's changed. Something different within your soul has changed. So it's getting, growing through that as a couple, and that's really yeah. difficult. And it, and it comes down to communication again, which is a really important factor, like you spoke about before, not just with the doctors but also people around you. Because um, Courtney and I have always had a really, really strong relationship, like, and we know that. We've had people tell us that, like, we've travelled around the world and back together and we've had business a business together and we can work together really well we just mesh and we're just like yin and yang um but even for us to be in that situation relationship wise it says a lot because you know someone that maybe his relationship's not as solid or strong or don't communicate enough like it could be completely catastrophic and damaging and you know the fact that we're aware aware enough to communicate about it and do something about it you know I, I just fear sometimes that people wouldn't do that and, you know, then, then you know, if a relationship moves on and breaks up from that situation, which is so unfortunate that nobody can help it, like, you know, nobody expects yeah. these things to happen, you know, then it's have a lifelong lasting effect. It's not just the fact that you got sick, it's the fact that you lost your relationships out of it. Um, and it even goes with yeah. close, close family as well, like it's, you know, out of I've got, I've got two sisters and my mum and dad and obviously, you know, brothers-in-laws and nieces and nephews, but, you know, my close family, like my two sisters and my mum, still to this day I've only been able to really confront one of them about it, which is my older sister, to say, you know, like, how are you in this situation? Because, you know, I know it took a big toll on them and, and it's hard because, you know, yeah. she, I asked her that and she broke down straight away, which I'm, very much expecting my dad to do it, my mum to do and my other sister to do, but I've just, I haven't got the courage to sort of talk to either of them about it, any of them about it yet because I just know it was also a heartbreaking situation for them. No one yeah. to put any of that pressure or stress onto someone they love. Like that's that's what yeah. that is, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, um, you know, 
I'll get there eventually, but like you know, you do, you'll notice you know if you've got close family and friends that you get through the situation and you get hugged a little bit tighter and a little bit longer now, and yeah. you know more kisses on the cheek yeah. and more interactions and more messages and more time together. Like it's just a natural thing because it's when you have a brush with death like that. I guess in any sense that it brings people closer together and sort of makes you realise what the important things are in life. Yeah, well, definitely, and I think that it is. It's that um, it's that awareness, and once your soul's been awakened and your eyes have seen something, you can't unsee it. And I think that you need the lesson in it is to go, as you've said, what's important, what do I value in life, and how do I want to live? And I think that's what you you guys beautifully do now. And um, you know, it is. It's a really tough thing to ask people in your family, "How was that time for you?" Because um. Yeah, that's confronting. It's really confronting to hear the response to that. Yeah, yeah, it is massively. Um, you know, but it's it's one of those things. Like you know, at least uh, at least I'm sort of here to tell the story. And you know, and yeah, yeah and blood cancer is obviously one of those and things like you're gonna have to deal with for a long time. So you know, you just gotta gotta get your head around it and accept it, and then just sort of you know manage your life accordingly. One hundred percent. And Teddy, he's going to hear this for you know in years to come, and he's going to hear how brave you know you were, and Courtney was, and your mum was, and your support team all around you was. And I know Courtney's mum was also a big support for you as well. So he's going to know that he had so many people help lifting you up to you know have his daddy here for him. So yeah, that's yeah. it. Yeah, no, it's definitely a little blessing to the whole thing. Um, obviously, yeah. you know. Post treatment now, I've got to avoid his snotty nose as much as possible. But you know, can't yeah. help. It's just something that you got to deal with long term with the low immune system. Yeah. Can I ask, um, you know, just because you are of the younger adult um, sector of a blood cancer diagnosis, was fertility, like, and Courtney being pregnant, but was fertility ever spoken about for you in? in the lead-up to treatment and all that testing? Yeah, so, I mean, and, and this is what I talk about with Courtney and I being adaptable and the adaptability and going with the flow. Like when we found out that we were going to have Teddy, we were freaked out because we'd nothing that we'd had planned anytime soon in the future. And then, you know, three, three four weeks later or whatever it was, uh, I think it was maybe nearly six weeks or a couple of months later that I found out um, it was like it, everything happens for a reason. Like, you know, we're having this child. Everything happens for a reason. 100%. Like, you know, every, you know, we're having him because there's a possibility I might not ever have kids again. Um, and, yeah, and it's, it is something we've talked about, obviously. Like we uh, – so when you go through the whole process in the public system, like one of the first things – I was lucky enough where I had a period of like four or five days where they said to me, go into the fertility clinic and get as many samples in as you can because there's a high chance that you're not going to be fertile after this. So, you know, yeah. um, a, a week leading up to the treatment, I was driving into the valley every day to do, you know, sperm samples, which Courtney wasn't real happy about. She's like, and can I ask who was driving you, Tom? Because I do know who was driving you some of those times. My mum, you mean, or? 
which is you know and I think I think that's you know it's not all it's not what you want to be doing with knowing what you you know with your mum driving you um to the treatment centre yeah it's it's a very lackluster experience as well like you know I don't know what Courtney thought goes on in that situation but it's just it's very clinical and it's a very hard task to achieve in that type of clinical setting I can tell you I can tell you that much and it's just and when they're like, get in there as many days as you can. And Courtney's just like, oh, great. So, you know, you're just going to spend the week driving in and, you know, doing your thing. <laughs> dropping, many, dropping, many, a sur- sample off. dropping a sample off four or five times before your treatment. And I'd be like, what, what do you want me to do? Like, this means whether you have kids or not in the future, like, you know. Exactly. And I think, you know, it's, there is, and, and to, to not even, and to add on to the fact that you're also not well, like your, your fatigue, your level of fatigue is, you know, skyrocketing. And then you're having to go and to drop off as, you know, a sample, as you say, for your future. And you may not be thinking about your future in that moment, but I think it's a, it was a blessing that you got to do that. Yeah, and yeah, have that exactly. opportunity because some people don't. Some people yeah. don't. No, like yeah, I, I have heard stories of you know people going into the hospital and then getting a scan and they're like, you know, you've got, you know, said said leukemia or bone cancer and we need to start chemo tonight and they don't have that like yeah, I've, I've heard that a couple of times where, and people just don't have the chance yeah. like, um, which is pretty. Flawed. And females don't get it. And yeah, and females they unfortunately don't get presented the option very often because of the time that it does take to collect eggs. So if a male can easily, you know, drop off a couple of samples, I think that it's so it's mm-hmm. you know it's important to do. Yeah, that's it. And and in those situations, obviously, just thankful that Courtney was pregnant as well, and then we had Teddy on the way, and it, and it, and it adds kind of. Uh, I mean, like I said, there's many times where I'm like, there's someone that's in a worse situation with me. Like I spent, I spent hours in the chair of doing chemo, and the girl across from me was in her early 30s, pregnant, getting chemotherapy. Like, and I'm just like, wow. I just don't understand like what I went through, how somebody could do that pregnant, and they you know, they're growing a child. Yeah, so, wow. yeah I, just, I just felt lucky enough that Courtney was doing the the baby growing over here to my right and I was through it. So, you know, when you see see situations like that, it's just, um, you know, you've got to be sometimes as bad as the situation is, you've got to be thankful, you know, and I I did see a lot of people. You've got to find that silver lining. Yeah, exactly, yeah. And I, and I think, you know, um, I'll, I'll add to that and say, you know, I think that that's almost your mental scaffolding and, and your, your mindfulness as well. You know, you taking into account and you, and your self-talk. I think that that's what you're doing by saying someone always has it worse. That's, that's you strengthening your mind and building and building yourself up. Yeah, exactly. Like, because, and that's the thing, like it, you know, it can always it can always get worse. Like like I said, most of the time I had my full functioning ability and my brain there. Like you know, obviously uh, the chemo does take a toll on your brain and memory. And I feel like I've been quite fortunate after the amount of treatment and I went through and the stem cell transplant that you know mm-hmm. a year a year out I'm pretty cognitively back to a hundred percent of what I was. Like you know, I have yeah. my 
have moments with short-term memory, but like other than that, like you know, there were stages that, that could are just be that you're a male. Yeah, probably. <laughs> um, so it, there's there's stages there where I thought, you know, am I ever going to have? Because like, I always prided myself on my intelligence and my memory, and like you know, that's that was one of my biggest assets as a person and a business person. So um, you know that yeah. You, that's the one of the hard things about going through the treatment is you lose the, the there's the prospect of losing elements of yourself that you might not ever get back, um, not just mentally and cognitively, but physically. Like leading up to the diagnosis, like you know, I was doing sort of you know fit stop sort of like F45 style training mm-hmm. three days a week. I was doing jujitsu three days a week. I was doing yoga on top of that. Like I was a fit and active person. And like you know, a year a year out from my stem cell transplant, I'm just just now sort of managing to do yoga sessions and walk around the block briskly. Like you know what I mean? Yep. Getting that. So I'm slowly yep. working back up to it. I just you know, it's a big thing as well. Just have a lot of patience with yourself, which is something I really lack. Um, I get reminded by Courtney all the time because I kind of overdo it a little bit, and then I get tired and crabby. And she's like, "You just got to be easier on yourself." Like you know yeah so maybe that's your lesson as well you have to be easier on yourself and it takes time and to and I think that kind of ties in with the fact of realizing and accepting that you are sick and that you have been through something because you you can't have gone through what you went through and expect for you to be back to where you were before you got diagnosed or before you started coming unwell. That's a really unrealistic expectation to have on yourself. So I think it's being kind to your soul, being kind to your body and going, okay, I went through a lot. So my I have to I have to be kind to my body to allow it to build back, you know, and that's gonna take time. It's not overnight. Yeah, and it's just a step at a time, like and that's that's sort of what I've been coming to realise more lately, obviously when I'm getting back into doing a lot of work and things like that, because yeah. Me being the person I am, I'm just make, making myself very busy because I enjoy business and all the things that I do and I've got my fingers in a couple of different pies so I'm just getting very busy and active at the moment and so in the same sense I'm just making sure I'm not overdoing it physically and I'm going to work up to that. Yeah. So, you know, I get up in the morning, yeah, every morning with Teddy. Teddy wakes up between 4.30 and 5.30 at the moment so I sort of get up with him. What a beautiful alarm. Yeah, that's it. And I'm lucky I'm an early, I'm a morning person because Courtney's not. So, you know, I just get up I just get up with him and roll out the yoga mat and I do yoga and he climbs on me and climbs underneath me yeah. and that's sort of our time together every morning before I start work and, and um yeah, I'll, I'll build back up more to the physical exercise, but I'm just gonna do it slowly and obviously be kind to my body in that sense. So Yeah. Because you know, a year ago you were you're in the depths of it, you're in the trenches of it, and you know you couldn't have imagined that you would be able to get up at four thirty five five o'clock and to do yoga with your son. You know, so what a where look where you are. That in itself, you should be proud of. Yeah, that's it. And like you know, you have to call on that sometimes as well. Like people that are in recovery, like you know, if you're in remission and you're finding it difficult to sort of get yourself back up and running to where you want to be, like you got to remember those times where you really push through tough periods and realize that you can do stuff and you will do stuff. It just you got to be patient. Like I know, like when I got out of ICU. I'd, I'd lost all my muscle mass. I'd put on 19 kilos of fluid in the space of nine days. 
like I was all swollen. Mm. Talk about losing your shame. Like, you know, I actually had to go to the toilet in a bedpan and get, you know, sponge bath by nurses, young nurses and things like that. And yeah. uh, I went blind because I've got blood clots in my eyes and, and so I'm still sort of recovering and regenerating my vision from that still 18 months on yeah. and losing my muscle mass. Like, you know, for the first, you know, week after ICU, I couldn't walk to the bathroom. Like, so I just set myself a mission you know, today I'm just going to walk from here to the door. I'm going to walk from here to the toilet. And then after about seven days, it was like I'm going to try and walk halfway around the ward. And then by the end of the week, I want to walk the whole way around the ward. And I think it was a period of about two and a half weeks after ICU that I got sent home because I was just like I'm just yeah, not, yeah. not spending another day lying in this bed. So I did everything I could. Yeah to get up and walk yep. and get my muscle mass back and, you know, so, you, mm. know, you know, when you go through those periods you realise that, you know, you will recover and you you will find a way to do it but, yeah, you also have to be patient at the same time. And celebrate the small wins. Celebrate those five steps when the day before you couldn't get up and you couldn't get out of your bed. And I think it's also for young adults letting any in anybody really, to be honest, you know, to, to let go of that guilt or that shame of I'm this age or I could do this and now I can't. If you let that go and just go, it doesn't matter what that was, but I'm going to get, you know, I'm going to slowly gain myself back over time. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, and it's just, you know, I'm... I'm alive. I'm awake. I can talk. I, I can look. I can breathe. You know, I can, you know, have, I can sit here and my family can touch me and I can touch them. It's just yeah. those small things yeah. that you got to build off. Like obviously not everyone goes through those situations. Like I just had an unfortunate situation through the stem cell transplant and not everybody will go through yeah. that situation and some people will and then unfortunately also some people don't get through the other side of it. But, you know, yeah. There's a there's a balance there's a balance to it all, but everyone one hundred percent and there's no comparison either. Like if even if you didn't get to a stem cell transplant and a ICU visit, like your treatment would be hard enough for you. Like you know, there's no comparison. As someone's went through it worse or someone hasn't, because mm-hmm. you know your journey is as hard as what you make it and how it feels to you. So you're just got to make sure you do that personally. One hundred percent. I couldn't agree more. So, Tom, I think you've you've you know you've given the listeners so many beautiful insights and so many pearls of wisdom throughout our conversation. Are there any we like to call them golden nuggets for the kind of the end of the episode that you'd like to leave with someone that is either being diagnosed, gone through it, you know, in that survivorship stage, or a carer or a family member? Are there any more golden nuggets you could um leave with people or that you'd like to kind of um, reiterate again yeah it it would definitely just you know getting the right headspace and it's not just um you know like like talking about the situation where people like you know uh you're you're tough and you're a fighter and, and things like that I'm not, I'm not talking about that it's just more it's more the acceptance of the situation and adapting through the situation to a way where your mind is in a spot that um, you know, there's there's going to be a result to achieve at the end, and you know, yeah. um, you know, obviously there's ups and downs, and and it's not, it's also, it's not just um, in a positive mind frame. There's also you have to have um, 
not too much expectation on what's going to happen in the journey. Like I said, you know, I started one treatment and it did, and and I was like, you know, oh, this is this is it. It's going to fix me. All I've got to have to do is go through six cycles, get a scan, and everything will be fine. Like, don't have too much expectation on that because it's such an ever evolving situation. Being a liquid cancer, like no pun intended, but yeah. it's a liquid. It's a liquid yeah. situation yeah. that changes yeah. and evolves. We have to be fluid. You have to be fluid with the situation and, and don't have any expectations so that when you get a new piece of bad news, like, oh, you've got a blood clot and now we've got to do this and uh, now we have to do this and now we have to do a different type of scan and now you've got to get this procedure to fix this issue. Like, you just have to just accept the as a, as a whole entire journey don't have expectation in stages and just know that the whole thing will eventually be finished and then there's going to be a result at the end and just making sure your headspace is right to be able to get through that entire journey to get to the goal at the end. 100%. It's perfect. Anything else or is that it? That's a, It's a wonderful piece of advice. Um. I don't know. Just enjoy life. Make sure you learn a lesson from it. Like I've only it's been, I'm at my year uh, fifteen months out from my stem cell transplant and remission, and I've just figured out this week what I've learned from the journey is that I've lost I've lost fear and doubt. Like I no longer doubt myself in situations, and nothing scares me. And you've really got to narrow down what the positive thing is that you pulled out of that situation. Like my social interactions, my business interactions, the way that I make an income, all those things have changed positively and exponentially because my barrier of fear no longer exists because if you go through this, it's going to be the most fearful thing that you will ever experience and don't doubt that for a second. Um, You know, and, yeah, and then just the doubt, like don't, don't read too much into the future because you never know what's going to come in three days' time. So just don't don't, yeah. doubt, don't doubt yourself in any situations like, oh, I, sh- I shouldn't do this because of that or I might not do this because this might happen. You just got to drop all that stuff because, like, you just you just do and react as you do without the fear involved because, like, you never know how much longer you have left. And that goes for everybody, not just for someone that's had a brush with death because, you know, you could have a brush with death on the way home from work. So... It's just living in the moment and just being adaptable to situations. Exactly. Because the only one, the only thing that we are actually guaranteed in life is death and we don't know when that's going to happen. So be fulfilled, live life, you know, with every day being fulfilled and living life to the fullest I think is a, is a wonderful message but it is also a tough thing but it's something that has, it takes practice. Uh, it's yeah. not something that's, um, that naturally comes. It's, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and it's a funny thing to say, but we're, we're terminal from the day that we're born, and people people kind of forget that sometimes. So yeah. don't read into too much of what people give you a time frame for survival or a terminal diagnosis because you're terminal from the second you come out of the womb. So yeah, yeah. yeah. Wow. Well, Tom, I can't thank you enough for coming on and sharing your story. And um, you know, as a friend, it's been, you know, it's. It's been a pleasure to watch you and Courtney grow and evolve through this and um, to see you both just handle it. You know, you've taken it on your shoulder and you, ha- you haven't let it, um, you know, emotionally beat you. You've, you've taken control and you've taken ownership of where you're at and I think that I take my hat off to you. Thanks, Kate. Thanks for having me on. Any um, If anyone ever wants to reach out to me anytime, I'm quite happy to sort of have a chat to anybody about it.
That brings us to the end of this episode today. We hope that you've found it helpful in some way. And if you would like more information on our services or today's episode, please feel free to call 1-800-620-420 and someone will be able to connect you with your local blood cancer support coordinator. Thank you for tuning in today. I'm Kate Arkadiff and you've been listening to the Leukemia Foundation's podcast, Talking Blood Cancer.